Hello, welcome to a new episode of Over Moro's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Today, we will insert on the shelves of our library something that is more than just a book. We don't know its author, and its composition took place over two millennia. It was one of the most famous and important books ever written in antiquity, and enjoyed incredible success. I'm talking about the Alexander Romance, first written sometime between the 4th century BC and the 4th century AD, and it was modified until the 16th century. This book is not just important for what it says, it's a book of adventures and much more, but also because it reveals to us other ancient ways of making world, making identity, and creating a landscape where it's possible to imagine and to live. To introduce the book, we need to step somehow to the side and start with another story. That sounds different, but it has a lot to do with the story of the Alexander Romance. So we will begin with a story written by Nonnus of Panopolis, an Egyptian writer of the 5th century AD. He wrote this very long poem, this epic poem called the Dionysiaca, in which he recounted the story of the god Dionysus. But in particular, the story of when Dionysus went to India to conquer it, and after long and epic battles, managed to conquer the subcontinent. And then from there, he went all the way to Greece. Why should we start with this story of Dionysus to introduce a book that doesn't talk about him, but talks about Alexander the Great? Well, because Alexander the Great himself fashioned his own adventures and discoveries, and especially military conquests, after the example of Heracles and of Dionysus. When he was trying to understand what he himself was doing, he had a series of models before himself, and one of them was that of Dionysus. And when people retold his story over the course of the centuries, they often compared his deeds with the deeds of Dionysus, of Heracles, and they retold them in the style that is typical of mythological rather than historiographical narrations. When we talk about Alexander the Great, we need to keep in mind that we're talking about a very, very major figure, not only for Greece and then for Europe, but also for Asia, the Middle East and North Africa, but a character of whom we don't know really anything. The earliest extant texts that we have retelling the story of Alexander in a historiographical way date to the Roman time, so hundreds of years after Alexander's death. During Alexander's life, many people wrote of their adventures together with him. For example, his generals. All his generals wrote accounts of their expeditions, but we lost them all. So we don't have anything from the time when he lived. What we have dates to hundreds of years later. And the one thing that talks about Alexander directly and can be dated to around the same time when he lived is the Alexander Romance, a book which is not uh, a book of history, but it's a book of stories. But first, maybe let's remind ourselves a little bit of the history, at least for what we know. Alexander the Great was born in Pella in Macedonia, North Greece, in the year 356 BC. He was a son of Philip and Olympias. Alexander was destined to live only 32 years, but in these 32 years, he managed to conquer, starting from Macedonia, an incredible amount of territory. First, he conquered Greece, very violently at the beginning. 
Then he moved and started conquering what corresponds to today's Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine and Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, parts of Pakistan, Tajikistan, parts of India. He died at 32, so he didn't have the time to consolidate his power. And after his death, all his empire disintegrated and transformed into a series of kingdoms, the famous Hellenistic kingdoms. Each of them was ruled by one of his generals, and they fought each other for a while until they settled. Hellenistic kingdoms are very important for the development of Euro-Asian culture from antiquity all the way to the Middle Ages. They create syncretic mixes of Greek-Asian style, Greek and Egyptian style, and for example, they produce visual representations that were never seen before. The first representations of the Buddha, as created in the, in the region of Afghanistan called Kandahar, after the Persian name Iskandar, which means Alexander. They were created by Greek artists that were working for Buddhist patrons. They also created that special atmosphere that was made famous by the deeds of Cleopatra in Egypt. Cleopatra was the last proper pharaoh queen who then committed suicide at the beginning of the, at the time of the Roman Empire. And she was one of the very last people in the line of kings that derived from Ptolemy, one of Alexander's generals. But this is not an opportunity yet to discuss Hellenism, but to start looking at Alexander as a person and Alexander as a mythological character. Alexander, in a way, was more than a person. He was a human being, of course. He was the stuff of fables. He was the product of a certain environment. He was the student of Aristotle. Aristotle was his personal tutor. And he fashioned his own life when he was young after the example of Achilles, the hero of the Iliad. During his life, Alexander turned out to be not only one of the greatest generals that ever lived and a very acute politician, but also a mass murderer, a war criminal, an alcoholic, a killer of his best friends and possibly even a killer of his father. Despite his shortcomings as a person and regardless of his achievements as a general and as a politician, what really interests us here today when looking at his Alexander romance is the fact that Alexander himself is an interesting artifact of world-building imagination. To observe this, it's interesting to bring an example not from the Alexander romance, but from the historiography that we have on Alexander the Great. It is told that one day, after a big battle, that he fought against the Persian king, Darius, Alexander discovered that he had captured, together with the whole camp of the Persians, also the mother and the wife of Darius. Entering the tent together with his lover, Hephaestion, Alexander saw the mother of Darius prostrating on the floor, begging for forgiveness. But when she was speaking to Alexander, she wasn't actually addressing the real Alexander. She was addressing Hephaestion. The fact is that Alexander was short, stocky, with a limping leg, with a stiff neck, uh, not very good looking. Hephaestion was tall, beautiful, slender, and so she imagined that Hephaestion was the real Alexander. When she realized her mistake, she was mortified, but Alexander simply replied, don't worry, he is also Alexander. The fact is that nobody is Alexander because Alexander is not a particular person. Alexander is a character. 
And even Alexander himself lived all his life to fill the shoes of this Alexander character. And what better way to appreciate Alexander the Great, not just as a person, but as a character, than to look at the Alexander romance. This incredible story, composed over the centuries, translated for almost two millennia and continuously modified, this book is attributed, in theory, to Callisthenes. Callisthenes was Aristotle's nephew, who joined Alexander's expedition to the east and was later killed by the order of Alexander. Alexander despised him, by the way, uh, always despised Callisthenes. But this attribution is false. In fact, it was composed by somebody, we don't know whom, and probably it was composed by different people. It is a bit of a mosaic of different bits. There are bits of letters, anecdotes, historical accounts, imagination, dreams, fantasies. It is possible that there is something in the book that is real, as in accurate historically, but we don't know what it is. The best way to approach the Alexander romance, however, is as a work of popular fiction. It was that kind of, that kind of text that people enjoyed reading, especially in Ptolemaic Egypt. So in Egypt, during the kingdom of the Ptolemaic dynasties, so the dynasty issuing from one of Alexander's generals, the longest in Egyptian history. But it's also more than just a popular fiction. It is a fable on the one hand, and is something close to the Gospels. In fact, what we have today of the Alexander Romance is several different versions, in the same way that we have, for example, four canonical Gospels, plus many others, retelling the life of Christ in a way that is natural and supernatural. And the Alexander Romance tells the story of Alexander in many different versions, which are replete with natural and supernatural events. The character of Alexander emerges from the story as a mix of culture hero, adventurer, and trickster. In some accounts of the story, for example, in the Persian version called Iskandar Nama, Alexander is also represented as a mystic that goes around the world seeking true knowledge. In the Greek version, he is portrayed to be on a quest for immortality. He wants to find the secret to become immortal. And of course, he doesn't find it. The book, the Alexander Romance, follows Alexander's adventures and conquests. But the interesting thing is that the order of all these events is not the correct order. And sometimes it doesn't even make sense. Clearly, the person who wrote it didn't know the geography that he was discussing, or it has been suggested by Richard Stoneman, one of the most important commentators and translators of the Alexander Romance today. It has been suggested that another possibility is that the author of the original text knew everything correctly, but probably wrote down his accounts on sheets of paper rather than rolls. And then over the course of the years and centuries, these sheets of paper were reshuffled in the wrong order. And when they were recopied, they were recopied all wrong, giving rise to this strange book with this very strange timeline and geographical storyline. Alexander, as I said, is portrayed as many different things, most noticeably as a trickster. He, for example, disguises himself many times during the book. He plays tricks on people. He's always smiling and, and replying in a cunning way to what people say and then finding a trick to resolve difficult situations. And like a trickster, he's above good and evil. He's also portrayed as an adventurer. 
For example, there is a section of the book in which they talk about the wonders of the East. And in that part, you will see something that will remain for centuries in European literature about Asia. Alexander discovers new and wonderful things. And his quest is, of course, for immortality, but also is the quest of an adventurer. He wants to discover what there is on the other side. And on the other side, he finds people that have the head of dogs, enormous giants, women covered in hair with retractable and expandable arms with which they can kill people, tiny, tiny humans with only one leg, ants that hide under the desert sands and then come out to devour horses and people, talking birds that tell Alexander where to stop and predict the future, fish that is cooked in cold water, not in hot water, the spring of eternal life that Alexander misses, but that actually is there and that actually revives some dead animals and so many more things, incredible wonders of all kinds. Trees that during the day expand all the way to becoming enormous and then during the night shrink to becoming nothing while emitting this perfume of myrrh. So Alexander is an adventurer. And if we follow this book, we find those kind of imaginations that will populate books all the way to the Middle Ages. Let's think, for example, of the book of travels of John de Mandeville, who traveled apparently to the East. But Alexander is also a culture hero. Culture hero is not just a hero with a cultural dimension, but it's also that figure that originates new traditions. And the figure who is not just a person, but also somewhat a god or a semi-god. During the book, we see at one point that he meets with the Brahmins. The Brahmins, the mystics of ancient India, are described in the book as the gymnosophists, which literally means the naked sages. This was a real encounter. It really happened. We do know this also in the history. We do know that Alexander, during his expedition, reached India. And in India, he met the philosophers. As part of Alexander's expedition, there were not only soldiers, mercenaries, and their families, but also scientists, poets, among which the unfortunate Callisthenes, and philosophers. One of these philosophers in particular, called Pirro, had the good fortune of following Alexander all the way to India, meeting the gymnosophists, the Brahmins, learning from them, and then making it back to Athens. He was the only philosopher of the group who actually made it back to Athens. When Pirro got back to Athens, he didn't forget what he had learned from the gymnosophists, but he brought it under a new name. He called it skepticism. Skepticism will be, from that point onwards and for a long period of time, the new version of Platonism in Greece. And it derives, as Pirro himself admits, from his conversation with the gymnosophists, with the Brahmins in India. In the book, we find this encounter in a completely fictional way. <laughs> it is true to a certain extent, but it's not quite what it seems. In the Alexander romance, the Brahmins meet Alexander and they treat him with utter contempt and disdain. And Alexander loves them. They treat him in the same way that legend tells us Alexander was treated by the cynic philosopher Diogenes in Athens. As you probably remember, the legend says that one day Alexander was in Athens and he wanted to meet this famous philosopher called Diogenes. Alexander loved philosophers because he had Aristotle as his own teacher. 
He went to find Diogenes, who was living in a tub, naked. Diogenes was the first of the cynics. Cynic from the Greek kynos means dogs. And cynicism, very differently from what we understand with this word today, had to do with a way of life that is very similar to the mystic saints and ascetics in India, but also later in Christianity in, in, the, in Egypt. Diogenes told Alexander that Alexander had nothing for him, that the only good thing that he could have done was to renounce everything and enjoy the simplest possible life. And Alexander replied by saying, if I wasn't Alexander, I wish I was Diogenes. This dynamic is repeated in the story of the Brahmins. Alexander loves these Brahmins that talk to him in this exact same way, telling him, you are bound to die at some point. Why then do you waste your life trying to accumulate territory, wealth, fame, and destroying the life of everybody else? You will have to pay for what you do and to respond for what you've done in front of the one true God. And here something rings a bit strange. The one true God? Well, yes, because the story of the Brahmins that we find in the Alexander romance is actually taken from somewhere else. It's actually taken from a short book that was written in the 4th century AD by Palladius, who was the bishop of Aspuna, or Helenopolis. And he was a Christian bishop. And in his short book about the Brahmins, he makes the Brahmins sound like Christian ascetic monks. Because Palladius, the author of this short book, had visited the early church fathers in the Egyptian desert, had been very impressed by them, and he had managed somehow to turn them into a paradigm for the monk or the mystic in any country. This book, once again, brings us back to Egypt. According to Richard Stoneman, the Alexander Romance was originally written in the Hellenistic age in Ptolemaic Egypt. And the Egyptian link is very strong. For example, the book starts with the story of Nectanebo. Nectanebo is an historical character. He was the last Egyptian pharaoh before the Persians conquered Egypt. You know, when Alexander historically arrived in Egypt, he didn't have to fight much to conquer it. Egypt was very happy to welcome him as a liberator because they had been under Persian rule for a long time. Before the Persian rule, the last legitimate, so to say, Egyptian pharaoh had been this Nectanebo. In the Alexander romance, Nectanebo is presented as Alexander's real father. Nectanebo was a strange character. He was a trickster, once again, and a fraudster also, and a wizard, and a semi-divine figure who had realized at some point in his life that Egypt was lost because the Persians were, by destiny, supposed to invade it and conquer it. So he had left Egypt, went to Macedonia, managed to seduce Alexander's mother through various magical tricks, and she bore a child who was, in fact, Nectanebo's child, and who was Alexander. The story continues by saying that Alexander, later on in his life, killed also Nectanebo. It's not quite clear in the book why he does it, but he does it violently at night, pushes him down in a ravine. But that's not all, because Nectanebo is this fraudster, trickster, wizard, but he's also somehow semi-divine. And he was an incarnation of the god Amon. Amon is for the Egyptians what for the Greeks is Zeus. In the way in which Amon and Zeus were later interpreted in Hellenistic times by people that were setting the scene 
for that sensibility from which emerged the explosion of monotheism, first with Christianity and then with Islam. Until that point, monotheism was peculiar to the Jewish people. But after Hellenism, it started to become an atmosphere. And this idea that there is a one true God that is bigger and stronger than any other, and somehow the one real one, we start finding in Ptolemaic Egypt with the figure of Serapis. Serapis is connected also to Alexander as possibly one incarnation of his father, so as one aspect of Amon, or maybe as the true secret aspect of Amon. But in reality, Serapis is something close to what we find in the Alexander romance. It is a fictional invention. Even more interestingly, it's a wonderful theological invention created by one of Alexander's generals. Because when Alexander dies, Egypt is governed by one of his generals, Ptolemy, who begins the Ptolemaic dynasty. And Ptolemy decides that he has to reconcile Greeks and Egyptians. His country is full of people from many different parts of the world, and especially Greeks and Egyptians. And one way to reconcile them is to mix the cards. So Ptolemy I, known as Soter, the savior, creates, literally by decree, a new god called Serapis. And Serapis put together elements of different Egyptians and Greek gods into one. He even designed the face of this god, the particular attributes, and Serapis became huge, a very important divinity, especially for Egypt, but then later on throughout the Roman Empire. One of the children of Serapis, the one true god, is another one of these syncretic strange characters that keeps together aspects from all sides, a little bit like Alexander in history, who was at the same time Alexander the Greek, Alexander the Persian, Alexander the Egyptian Pharaoh, but also the reincarnation of Heracles, the reincarnation of Achilles, the reincarnation of Dionysus, possibly the reincarnation of Ammon, and so on and so forth. So one of the children of the god Serapis is another one of these characters, and it was known as Harpocrates. Harpocrates was the Hellenistic god of silence and secrets. And it was a Greek adaptation of baby Horus. His mother was Isis and his father was Serapis. Serapis, Harpocrates and many others were especially worshipped in Alexandria, the capital of New Egypt, founded by Alexander the Great, and the place where he will be buried at the end of his life. Interestingly, among the things that we know and we don't know about antiquity, the one thing that we know is that Alexander was indeed buried in Alexandria. He had a huge monument and a tomb there. We know also more or less where it was in the city, but we haven't found it yet. It's been centuries that people have been looking for the real tomb of Alexander the Great. Who knows if we will find it one day. Alexandria in itself as a city is a romance of Alexander. It's full of wonderful, implausible, incredible and, and utopian things. Alexandria was a cosmopolitan city and it was always meant to be a cosmopolitan city. It is recounted, you find it in the romance of Alexander at some point, that when Alexander decided to found the city of Alexandria, they traced on the floor of the city the plan of the streets Interestingly, they looked a bit like Manhattan. They had a very early example of this rationalistic, rigid grid system. And to mark this series of indications on the ground, they, they had a ritual, as it was usually the case when founding a new city in antiquity. The ritual involved the fact that the whole perimeter of the city had to be 
covered in flour. As soon as the flour was put on the floor, hundreds of birds flocked from everywhere to eat it. Alexander was disconcerted and asked the, the magicians and the, the diviners to explain what that meant. And they said, this means that Alexander will be the home to the whole of the world and will repopulate the whole of the world in the same way that these birds come from everywhere and will go everywhere. This is, to my mind, the treasure of the romance of Alexander, a book written by nobody and by everybody, written in no time that we are certain of and written for over two millennia with a character who is a character and not a person. And a person inside that character does sometimes talk about how hard it is to be himself. Often Alexander talks about the fact that if he could choose, he would rather not be Alexander. And the diamond, the demon that he has in his mind that makes him do things is, what is truly his worst enemy and the one that will be his own ruin. But that he's powerless against the tuche, against the fortune, the destiny that he has. To continue looking into these transformations of worlds, of realities and of identities and of media, in the next episode, we will speak with a musician, but also a student of many ancient languages, many of which have brought the romance of Alexander all the way to us today. The next episode will be the last episode of the second season of Overmorrow's Library, and it will be a special episode together with Nicola Jarre. I hope you will follow me there or here at the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Goodbye. <laughs>